Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Jerry's World is brought to you by Less is More Events. Get live. Welcome to Jerry's World. world this week we are going to talk about gentrification are you tired my black and brown people of becky and bob coming into your neighborhoods and controlling the comps well we are going to talk to a man who is changing the narrative he is buying back the block in houston texas in a neighborhood by the name of fifth ward and not only is he buying back the block but he's going to teach you how to buy back the block too so without further ado let's welcome mr Christopher Senegal. This is Cherry's World. Making Memory Sale Series. It's a sale that allows families and people in our communities in any city, state, or showtime to attend a series of events at a lower price than most, such as like the Trolls Live, Disney on Ice, the Universal Soul Circus, concerts, sports, and more. Contact Less Is More Events at 202-930-3533. Again, that's 202-930-3533. Visit the website, getlimetickets.com. They're on social media, Facebook, IG, Twitter. Less is more events. Get out and line. Hey, if you're listening to Cherry's World Podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, please give us a five star. Let us know what you think. Leave us a review. I want to hear from you. Thank you. Would you like to advertise on Cherry's World and have your product placed on Cherry's social media for the world to see? Email us now at cherriesworldpodcast at gmail.com for low introductory rates. Cherry's World Podcast. Get heard. Welcome to Cherry's World. Thank you so much for being here. For me, this is important. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I used to have a restaurant in Houston. Really? I am in love with Houston. I feel like okay. Houston is my second home. And we have a lot of listeners in Houston. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So okay. When I was looking at your page, I was really excited about this. Oh, he's got cute dimples too. I was really <laughs> excited. My daddy has dimples. Oh, <laughs> I was really excited about all the stuff that you have going on mm-hmm. with the making, making our hood new. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it, it's been a passion for a long time. So finally have it coming to fruition has been awesome. Can you tell me how that passion started? 
Yeah. So, okay. My background, um, I, I, I was like a typical, like good kid, went to school um, until high school. I had my son when I was actually 16, barely 16. So teenage dad, um, worked a lot and then uh, went to college on full academic scholarship, uh, got a civil engineering degree, got a good corporate job. And as soon as I hopped out of corporate, um, hopped out of college and got into corporate America, I, I just felt like I was sold a dream. I was like, man, this is, this is not what they tell, what they tell you it's gonna be. It's like everybody, everybody says, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. I took engineer because it was the shortest path, right? Yeah. Get out there and it's just like, man, it's, you know, it's a lot of nepotism in the workplaces. It's not really about how well you perform. It's, you know, you're just a, a pawn in the game, really. So for me at that point, at 23, I decided I needed to focus on figuring something bigger and better out for life. And so real estate is what I kind of fell into because I kept just, it just kept coming up over and over. It's like, um, that's how a lot of first generation wealth is made, whether people are investors or they just own property in the right areas. And, uh, you know, over time, the value increases their net worth a lot. So that's, that's what I did. I started flipping houses in 2008. Um, and uh, right at the last recession, ironically. So um, for me, this is like deja vu. It's a great time to get in and get deals. So it's, I did that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I did that for like uh, five years. And then about 2013, it, you know, a lot of my friends or my coworkers were like, how can I get in? What can I do? And at this point, I'm knowing flipping houses is not what it's like on HGTV at all. Um, you know, so you, you lose a lot more money in a lot of deals, takes a lot more time, um, a lot of property management. And, um, you know, so for me, it, it kind of became frustrating. It's like, how can I have a bigger impact? What can I do? How can I include more people into it? And so, of course, we all know about the gentrification narrative of how this, our neighborhoods usually get uh, converted over to other people's neighborhoods when we're not looking for the most part, or they take advantage of people in our neighborhoods um, when they are in a position to control what's going on. I was kind of like, well, you know, I know a lot of flippers that are look like me. I know a lot of people that own a lot of rental property that look like me. I even know a few builders that look like me, but I haven't really seen any of them try to figure out how we can tackle what happens in our neighborhoods. Like if we're all in real estate and we're all making money, why can we not figure out the solution to this problem? Um, so it became, it really became like a passion for me to try to figure it out. And so in um, 2013, I was actually able to do what's called creative financing, where I was able to buy a whole block of property with a grocery store and like four or five houses on it without using the bank. And what I did was I basically approached the owner who actually inherited that property from his dad. And he, this guy was like 78, old Jewish guy in the historically black neighborhood. Um, his dad had owned like 26 blocks and he acquired all of them like, wow. like in the late 60s, early 70s, like after desegregation when a lot of us left the neighborhood mm -hmm. because we had the right to go live in other people's neighborhoods now. A lot of, uh, that's, a, that's a side of our story that we don't really talk about too much. But um, that's when a lot of other people came in and bought up those neighborhoods. And the only people that were left there were the ones that couldn't afford to leave after desegregation. So they, they all became, they're all long-term tenants of these folks. And um, yeah, so for me, I was able to talk him into owner financing it to me. So I gave him 10% of the purchase price, which, which was crazy. I don't know where you live, but I was able to get a whole block of property for $450,000 here and only coming out of pocket 45,000. 
Yeah, um, you're doing that in California. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it's certain markets that, that that's crazy numbers, crazy numbers. But it's all about or you know the regional location. Um, and so you know at that point I realized, wait a minute. So it's actually possible for for us to use other means besides waiting for to save up enough money to be able and have a good enough credit to go to a bank and ask them, you know, uh, for permission basically to buy stuff in our neighborhoods. And so that's when I really buckled down on it. And um, I didn't know what I was gonna do with the property at that time. I just knew I wanted to do ha have some type of impact. At first I tried to revive the grocery store that just wasn't gonna work. What I learned about that is, uh, you know, we always talk about um, food deserts or areas in our communities where there are no retail, there is no grocery, there's no restaurants um, that cook healthy food. And the reason for that is, is not because, not, not so much because of just the prejudice thing or something like that is, it comes down to numbers. Like restaurants have very low profit margins grocery stores have even lower profit margins. And if there is not the income in that community to support those businesses, those businesses will not survive. They'll close up shop and they'll leave. That's and why so, mine closed. It was off of Bissonette. Really? Across yeah. the street from that Popeyes. So oh yeah. Make no money. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the part we miss. You know, I mean, it's good to do things for charity, but you know, if it's going to be your livelihood or your family's livelihood, it has to it has to be profitable. Yes. Um. So for me, what I did first was um, instead of spending a lot of money trying to fix the property up, I just did parolee housing. So I figured that was the first group I could help because mm. people that have felonies, especially, it's very hard for them to find anywhere to live when they get out of prison. Um. So I took only nonviolent people. Um, most of them have been in prison for longer than ten years. So I would just rent them out rooms um, and they would pay 350 for the room, all bills paid. And part of their parole was they had to keep a job, they had to keep a place to live. So they were very low maintenance tenants, believe it or not. Like people, most people would be scared to uh, have them as tenants, but they were, they were great. Matter of fact, most of them had trades. They were like carpenters, electricians, plumbers, all these trades. They were oh, in so they can help you yeah. out. So anything that happened on the property, I just drop off supplies and materials, you know, they would fix it for free. They would just happen to have somewhere to live, somewhere stable, you know. That's awesome. The parole office loved it. Um, and uh, eventually, like 2016, uh, redevelopment started in Fifth Ward. And um, it was, I saw that other developers that didn't look like the community were coming in and they were building houses and they were selling them quickly, like without even having to list them on the internet as they were under construction, people were buying them. Um, and so for me, it's like, okay, now it's my opportunity to take this to the next level. So I let my property manager actually take over my parolee program. I found her another property that had like uh, five houses on it. And I did the same thing. I, I helped her owner finance it from that seller. And so she took over that program. And um, after that, I was able to start putting a plan together to do something with this block of property. And so for me, the first thing I was thinking about was, you know, that a lot of people focus on low-income housing. All that's really good, but what my focus was is if I'm ever going to be in a position to show our community how to bring uh, businesses back, I need to attract people that make good money back to the neighborhood and people that look like me that make good money and get them back in the neighborhood. So, well, let, let me tell you, me and Courtney was both snooping around on your uh, website, right? Courtney hit me up and he was like, yo... I'm ready to get his due two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like, I need, I need some answers, and he was asking me, and I was like, I don't know. Well, we gonna yeah. ask him on Friday when we get here. Yeah, so, yeah. You break it down because your investments they go 
like as low as two hundred fifty dollars, five hundred fifty, seven hundred fifty, fifteen hundred, twenty five hundred. I'm throwing these numbers out there because a lot of black people don't know that they can invest with something so low. Right, and you know what? Uh, what's what's greatest? We can we can thank uh, Barack Obama for that because oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. The Jobs Act was something he implemented, and under the part of the Jobs Act was a a new tier of group investing that's called uh, it's a a tier three regulation it's called called regulation crowdfund literally where it took the same model that you would do for like a a gofundme but it allowed people to actually invest in a in real estate collectively or or any investment collectively before that these things always happen but they use big fancy words for they call it syndication and so say uh, somebody wants to buy an apartment complex they can get five or six of their rich friends and each one of those people have to be what they call an accredited investor. So you have to be worth a million dollars, net worth of a million dollars, or have made or have made two hundred thousand dollars for the past two years on your own to be considered accredited. And you are the only person that even has the opportunity to invest in those types of deals. Well, now there's there's a new new tier where anybody can invest up to ten thousand dollars of their own money um, into any project. So it opens up everybody has the opportunity to be able to get in. And so I, I, I used that uh, that platform and that crowdfunding vehicle to fund my second project. So the first one was a new construction. That was the development. Um, and that's been working. Um, I've built five of them. I've got five young black working professionals uh, that work downtown that could have bought houses in the suburbs. But I, you know, they understand the value of buying early in a neighborhood that's gentrifying because there is a big mixed use development coming. Like 150 acres, I'm talking about like high-end hotels, restaurants, everything. Like that neighborhood is about to be completely gentrified. It's going to look completely different. I don't know if you remember City Center. Yeah. The same developer that built City Center is building a, a, a double, a double the size in Fifth Ward, and it's less than a mile from where the project is. Is it still going to be able to be called Fifth Ward? Oh, they're going to change the name. They're, 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 they're already, they're already calling it. They're calling it North Edo. Either east downtown for the north end of so you know they, they you know when they start renaming stuff that's when it's real yes okay so can you do me and courtney a favor mm-hmm. and for everybody else in houston who is listening because i know y'all listening mm-hmm. walk me through if i give you 250 dollars, right because we can come up with 250 dollars. everybody mm-hmm. courtney asked me something about was there a monthly fee like what's the return of investment how does that work Okay, so the so the crowdfund is specifically for the second project, which was me me trying to find the solution to the second problem that we have with gentrification. It's how do we protect the long term tenants because they're renters; they don't actually own their property, right? Um, and so for me, what I was, what I realized is, wait a minute, a lot of these communities have landlords that own a bunch of real estate, just like I bought this entire block from this guy. There's mm-hmm. other landlords that own rental properties that are still occupied. And so I was able to uh, find through one of my students who I teach how to wholesale, which is that they, they find uh, tired landlords and people that are losing their properties and we negotiate purchase agreements with them. So w- we were able to fire, find a, land, a, a landlord couple that were in their 70s and ready to retire. And I was able to talk them into seller financing that whole Another whole block to me is 18 houses and two commercial buildings. One has a, one of the commercial buildings has a restaurant in it. By the time it used to be a barbershop, we're going to convert that to a coffee shop. 
Um, but that 18 houses are all occupied and it, the property is already bringing in like $12,000 a month as is without touching it. So I'm like, okay, this is a solid, solid investment. Um, and so I had been trying to figure out a way to go to answer that initial question that everybody was asking me is how can I participate? And no matter what income level you're at, if you're, whether you're a teacher, um, whether, you know, whether you're a babysitter, whether you're a doctor, whatever, um, if you want to get your feet wet in real estate without taking the risk on of owning your own property, this is a good way for you to do it. I mean, I, you are actually going to be partnering with an experienced investor and, um, you know, putting your money into something that is a solid investment because it's really close to this 150 acre mixed use development. I'm talking about like three quarters of a mile away, like six, eight blocks away. And it's got cash flow already, so it's already bringing in revenue. And so a lot of people that don't really understand real estate will make bad decisions on buying the wrong house, right? So the house may look nice, but uh, and it may be in a good area, but the mortgage payment may be really close to how much you can rent it for, so you're making no profit. Um, or vice versa, they'll buy a house and you know not be able to get a tenant in it, or, or all kinds of different things to buy a house that needs a lot more work than they thought. So this is a safe way to get into real estate and understand it. So for $250, so what? So I'm sorry. So let me break down the whole project. So I bought the property for 1.2 million, 1.25 million from the sellers. Um, the way I structured it with them is no bank involved again, but I had to give them 50% at closing. So $600,000 was paid at closing. And then I told them what I wanted to do. They're an older black couple. I told them I want to make this a model for how we can collectively buy properties in our neighborhoods, protect long-term tenants, and make it a, a, a group investment. And so when they heard that, they bought in. So they were like, Chris, if you give us half a closing, we'll give you two years to pay us off. But the great part is, in those two years, I don't make any mortgage payments. So for two years, I get to take all that $12,000 a month. The first couple months, I've reinvested in making the property nicer for the tenants. The next few months, I'll take that money and I'll be fixing up the commercial side to get businesses back in the vacant spaces on the commercial side, which is gonna, of course, create more entrepreneurs, create more jobs in the community and create a new point of destination for the people locally um, and the surrounding area because there, there is no breakfast spot in Fifth Ward. There is no internet cafe in Fifth Ward. So we're gonna be bringing all that right there on site. Um, and so what the investors that come on with me get to do is they, they get to buy a little micro ownership share of this project. So basically the same thing they do with the company. When a, when a company goes public or whatever they call it, you know, the initial public offering, they just take the business as a whole, the value of the business, and they break it up into little bitty shares and mm -hmm. then people buy shares. So that's exactly what I'm doing with this, taking that crowdfund model and selling shares of ownership. So it's not like, not like, a, not like a GoFundMe or something where you're putting money together to give to somebody. You are actually investing alongside me in the project and owning a very small portion of it. But there's a, a, a direct correlation between your investment and the value of the property. So if the value of the property goes up 10%, your share value goes up 10%, right? So um, I'm, I'm, I, I hate, I cannot oversell things. So I'm always trying to be very conservative, but in the area around city center, the other project that you know about, the property values literally tripled over there after city center was built because that was the Mexican low-income neighborhood, Spring Branch. 
That was there's very little income up there. So this is Fifth Ward. I'm saying conservatively, even if the property value only goes up 40 or 50 percent, that means your $250 investment is now worth $400 or more in a, in a few years. So is the plan now, is it initially $250? Is there a monthly fee? That there is, no, there, there is no fee because it's an investment. You, yeah, you're literally just investing money with me into the project. And the project is, is basically paying for itself because it already has cash flow. So there's there's no need to take any extra funds out of that. So uh, is this going to be something where like five years from now you turn around, if it turns into like city center where you sell it and then everybody gets their shares out of it? What is the what is the long term plan? Great question. Great question. OK, so the, 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 the income, the income that comes along with it is I'm taking 40 percent of the net rent, which means after all the bills are paid at the end of the year, I'm taking 40%, uh, I'm taking 40% of whatever's left, which is profit at the end of the year, and I'm dividing that up amongst all of the shareholders. So every shareholder is gonna get a, a small check off of that. So that's like a dividend, the same thing you get with a stock. Um, and that usually is gonna be about three three to 5%. Um, and to correlate that to a rental property, um, if you own a house worth $100,000, and you're making say $300 a month in profit between the mortgage payment and the rent. That means in a year you've made $3,600 off of a $100,000 investment. So that's 3.6% interest. Mm -hmm. So with your dividend, you're gonna get that same 3%, but on a micro level, because you didn't buy a whole house. You, so right. it's like you're getting the same exact benefits and returns as owning rental property. On top of that, just like that rental house, if it's in a neighborhood where the value goes up, then your investment value goes up. So the share values will go up. And then once a year um, after the, the campaign closes, um, we're, I'm gonna get the property appraised and I'm gonna give everybody an opportunity to evaluate whether they want to stay in the investment or they wanna sell. So if you wanna stay in it, then you, you'll know what your new share value is. You'll know that your investment has increased in, in, uh, in, you know, in what it's worth. And, or if you want to sell, you can cash in. So if you bought the shares or $250 for the minimum investment, if they've gone up 10%, you can sell now at 275 and take a 10% profit and walk away. And then anybody else that missed the first round of investing can then invest because I'm on, after this first round closes, they'll only have an opportunity once a year to do that. It'll be a small time window. So that's pretty much how it works. Um, and I don't ever plan on getting rid of this portfolio of properties. I'm, I'm, it's, this is a long-term play, but everybody will have the opportunity to buy more shares once a year or sell their shares and move on to something else if they want to. I've been taking notes. I don't want you to think I was like not paying you attention. I've been taking notes of everything you've been saying. So I'm going to go back to uh, what you said. So you say you started investing in 2008, right? 2008, uh-huh. Um, did you get not caught up in it? I don't know how I'm not politically correct, but <clears throat> did you take advantage of or get caught up in or however you want to look at it? Uh, the reverse, the reverse mortgage scheme that was going on in 2008. I don't know. No, you know what? I, 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 I was not a part of that. Um, I know a lot of people that did get literally caught up in it. Um, that the, when, um, they were not verifying any documents and people were forging their information. Right. to get big, big loans against property. Yeah, so they, basically what they were doing is they would, they would take any house, as long as you had decent credit, and they would have an appraiser inflate the value of the house more than what it really was worth. 
and then they would take it to the bank and then the bank would give them a loan against that inflated fake value of the property. And then the bank would give them a loan because the bank liked the fact that they were loaning out more money because they're getting more interest, mm -hmm. right? And they're getting, um, they're, they're getting more fees on the front end for, for originating all of these loans. And so people were pocketing all that money yep. and it got, yeah, it got to the point to where- That sounds dumb. It, 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 well, it, it was dumb. And that's why, that's why a few people that were smart and savvy in banking got really rich during, during that crash because they knew when everybody's talking about the junk mortgages, that's what they were referring to because the, it gets pretty deep. So the bank would loan them the money and then the bank knew it was high risk. So the bank didn't want to keep that, that mortgage on their books for 30 years. They're like, this person's probably going to default next year, two years, foreclose, whatever. So what we're going to do is we're going to take all of our mortgages and we're going to go to these big investment banks like Lehman Brothers and we're going to tell them, hey, we got 100 mortgages right now. It's bringing in, uh, let's say it's bringing in $80,000 a year in, uh, in just interest payments. You know, it's going to be higher than that, really. But it'd be, it, the total investment for them could be millions, basically, but it's high risk. And so they sold all that stuff to Lehman Brothers now. So the bank has washed their hands of it. Now these investment banks like Lehman Brothers own all that stuff. And then guess what starts happening? People start defaulting. So that's what really triggered the whole mortgage crisis. Yeah. Do you believe in using your own money or using other people's money as far as banks? And yeah. Well, I mean, I would not have been able to do the things I did right now if I waited till I had saved up enough money or if I had done enough with my own deals to do it. So um, leveraging other people's money is definitely the way to go. Um, but I mean, you can't do it if you don't know what you're doing because you know you are gambling with somebody else's money. I mean, anybody that lends you money wants to know two things or three things. They want to know, am I going to get my money back? How long is it going to take me to get my money back? And how much am I going to make off of my money being right. with you? So, you know, as long as you can answer those three questions and you can show them that you have a credible track record, then, um, yeah, I would say definitely find people that um, have money sitting on the sideline, don't know what to do with it, and, uh, you know, then use it to your benefit. And I always tell people, too, like, success in anything and not just real estate uh, it requires three components um, one is you got to have the knowledge one is you got to have the opportunity and one is you got to have the money you don't have to have all three mm -hmm. so if if you can go out and find a house and it looks like it's going to be a good deal but you don't have the knowledge or the money you can go find the contractor you can go find an investor that'll you know charge you a fee to be your mentor to walk you through the deal and then once you have that knowledge person either that contractor or that investment mentor, then you can go to somebody who's got the money and they'll say, okay, it's not just you. You got somebody on your team that knows what they're doing and you've got a good deal. Then, and it's a lot easier for you to get other people's money that way. You know, I was going to follow, uh, I got a follow-up to the follow-up. Um, I was listening to you and Cherry talk about the restaurants and how it uh, suffers. And so um, a lot of people, smart, really smart people, believe in taking other people's money instead of spending their own. Um, so I got a two part question. The question I have is, um, when you had brought in, uh, oh, I'm not, like I said, I'm not politically correct. You brought in, uh, not criminals, but the people that just got out of jail, you, you, you housed them. Parolees. You said, yeah, parolees. Did, did the government give you money for that? And the second, second part is mm -hmm. as far as you and Cherry, when y'all had the restaurants, I mm -hmm. found, um, this. I'm not politically correct, but the Arabs in our neighborhood, I'm from Chicago, yeah, the Arabs, yeah. this, this is what they do, right? Mm -hmm. So they get the, um, 
the Section 8 money, they get the uh, the, the link cards, right? So they uh, mm-hmm. this guy, he owns a seafood restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So what he does is he says, we take link. And we're like, how do you take link for crab and stuff like that? So he sells mm-hmm. the food cold, mm-hmm. but we, mm-hmm. I'll char- he charges you to cook it. So mm-hmm. basically he swipes the link card to get the money and he mm-hmm. just charged you two or three dollars to cook it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, so I'm like, it's actually kind of smart because you're using somebody else's money, and that guys are making a whole bunch of money. Whereas yeah. a lot of people, yeah. they default because they can't keep up, you know. But I was like, that's smart. That's taking advantage of the system. So that's that's, right. that's my two part question. Did you get any money from the state for taking in parolees? And mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about, you know, with the restaurants? Yeah. So Texas doesn't have like a formal or the corrections doesn't have a formal program here to, uh, to fund the parolees. Some of them would be able to get uh, like assistance from like the Salvation Army for short term housing plans. But uh, for the most part, they had to keep jobs. Um, and so, you know, it was really hard for them to get jobs, too. So once they had a job and they had a place to stay, you know, I didn't have I didn't have any issues with any of them at all. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, now, I've heard of other areas where it's like it's more like if the halfway houses are full and they have to find somewhere in the community to place those people, then sometimes the state will cover the housing for those guys, but I wasn't a part of that program. Okay. Um, but but what you're talking about, yeah, down here they call it you buy, we fry, basically. Oh, okay. And the, the Arabs and, and the Asians do a lot of that in, in the low-income neighborhoods. Um, but what, what's so ironic about that is um, I have a young lady that came by the commercial space in the project that, um, that I'm doing about, about the renovate, and she wants to do fresh food in a juice bar. And so I was actually explaining that model to her. I was like, you know, you come into these neighborhoods, a lot of people won't be able to buy a $7 smoothie. Right. You know, they don't fix income. I was like, but if you can figure out where you can sell them fresh fruit, mm-hmm. they can use their cars for that. And then yeah. you blend it afterwards. And that's a, that's a way probably for you to be able to survive in a, in a neighborhood like this, because she really wanted to come to a low income neighborhood and provide them healthy food options. And, so, and they would, the projects behind us used to come and ask me like, could they buy a tomato? Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Oh, I don't sell a tomato. They were like, "Can we buy lettuce?" Because it was a food desert. Yeah, it was nothing yeah. they could get there. And I started just giving stuff away, and then I was like, "I can't keep giving y'all my." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so they could go make dinner, but they send their kids in. Tell mm-hmm. my mama, I said, "Can I buy a tomato?" Mm-hmm. Oh, baby, take the tomato. Like, how do you tell a little kid they can't have a tomato? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, yeah. And that model works, but it works better if you have like the assembly line, the cafeteria style line where they right. can get the raw stuff. Yes. But when you have sit down restaurants, you can't really do that. Right, right. No, not at all. But that's I what you had though, Cherry, right? You had um, the cafeteria. It was a soul food spot. Yeah. Was it cafeteria it a style or no? It was a it was a restaurant. Oh, okay. That's why we didn't we we closed. We ain't make no money. I was feeding kids and giving away tomatoes and <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. tough business. People don't realize that I, I think we, we gravitate towards what what we hear everybody else talking about as far as good businesses to start with, right? So it's either you're gonna sell some clothes. You're gonna uh, have like a be a beautician or a salon, or you're gonna have a restaurant. Those are those are the, the low hanging fruit that we hear about over and over. But restaurants, most restaurants have. You're lucky if you have a 10 percent profit margin consistently. Especially you know? the first year, but I'm not a good restaurant owner, and I thought that I was going to come in and give low price meals for people. Mm-hmm. But then when you realize that sometimes when I have that hot dog dollar day. Mm-hmm. that's the only meal that those kids are going to get that day. Yeah. 
So when you start to see these same kids over and over again coming in to get their hot dog, you end up sliding them some chicken and some macaroni and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. What do you do? You yeah, feed them. It's tough. I'm not a good business owner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it it becomes it becomes a charitable organization at that point. You know. Yes. So it has it, it it's more it turns into a passion project basically. It's no longer like a a profitable business. Yeah, I couldn't afford to feed the whole neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. and that's yeah. that's why it's important for us to bring the higher income people back. You know, because if they're there, then there could be neighborhood organizations that 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 pitch in to help feed the kids in the neighborhood. You know. In the gentrified neighborhoods, all the people that look in don't look like us, so they're not. They don't care about the poor people in the neighborhood. But if if we actually start repopulating our historically black neighborhoods with the people with the high incomes, it's a lot easier for us to facilitate taking care of that group. You know? So I have a nonprofit that I started, okay. and um, the focus of that nonprofit is specifically to take um, people that are on their first conviction for selling drugs mm-hmm. um, and teaching them that what they are learning is actually how to run a business. They just have an illegal product, right? Right. In our neighborhoods, that's the only capitalism that we're really exposed to. That's the only, that's the only real business where you got to learn, okay, I got to find a, a source of a high quality product. I got to figure out how I'm going to differentiate myself from everybody else. I got to figure out how I'm going to take over a market share, AKA my corner. Right. I got to figure out um, how I'm going to, uh, retain clients. I'm going to get clients first, which is marketing. Right. How I'm going to retain clients after that. How I'm going to get my my bulk product and break it down to the right. retail level, sell to individual. That's supply chain. Oh, that's a business. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you're going because that's that's where I was going. Because see, yeah. I, I see a lot of restaurants in the na- in the local neighborhoods and stuff like that. And you you hear these stories about, like you said, restaurants. They have a hard. You know, you might make a ten percent profit. Or whatever mm-hmm. like that the underground market they can afford to take the risk of not whereas mm-hmm. whereas a, a normal business owner who just took a yeah. loan out they mm-hmm. can't take that risk i think a lot of like a car washes and all this stuff is being funded by um it's washing money exactly a lot, a lot, of, a lot of them do and it's not and it's not nothing that we have like it's no need to take it out because that's every community like the the biggest mobs and mafias weren't black people they were exactly and you know and Russians and stuff like that in the big city. So yeah, that's what they were doing. Right. Um, but yeah, that that's the only way they could clean they could they could clean that money. They have to go through businesses that are cash heavy and just keep flooding that with 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 uh with with, with currency with real dollars mm-hmm. and acting making it like it's it's uh, transactions. And so yeah, a business that's only making eight to ten percent profit, you know, a year. Even if you if if you're a restaurant bringing in a million dollars a year, but you're making eight percent profit, that's eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's a that's a one household type of income, right. and some of those are trying to feed two or three households. You know, so yeah, they, they, of course they're gonna go take the illegal money. Somebody's gonna come off from an extra hundred thousand just to flush some money through there. Yeah, let's let's stay off of that. I don't think we need to yeah. go there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let me ask. I want to do stay on. The, yeah, I know, but. <laughs> I, I know. I know you didn't think you were going to be coming on here talking about washing money. No, but no, but no, no, no. I mean, it, it's a really a part of it because I mean that's that's part of my passion too for the neighborhood because like okay. that's that's all we're exposed to and that and we feel like that's the only way of life. But you know, by by um, educating and, and exposing people to the other alternatives, alternatives that we have that other communities already rec- replicate and do, right. you know, it, it it can help us get out of get out of that mindset. That's that that's how we have to 
move to survive. So. I just don't want to come across as I'm saying that every local hair salon, uh, every not. local barbershop yeah. is funded yeah. by drug money. Most of uh, them are, but not. I don't want to come across as saying all of them are. I, I would say, I, from especially well, in Houston, I, it's probably twenty or thirty percent where you you know like they've been staying open a long time and there's no <laughs> there's no foot traffic going in, nobody supporting that business. There's something else that's that's supplying the the electricity bill, you know. Yeah, you probably, probably stay away from that. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, Cherry. Sorry, Cherry. I didn't I, know. No, it's okay. I have a question because I got people actually texting me right now. I've been talking about you all week. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I people in Houston and was like, yo, this is going to be a show that you really need to listen to. One of my friends just hit me up and he asked me because I told him that you're on right now. I was like, I'm talking yeah. to him right now. I don't have the answers yet to tell you. Yeah. He's like, how long is this investment opportunity available? And I said, probably till he reaches his cap, but I don't know what that is. Well, actually, so um, as of today, I'm clo- the, the campaign closes in um, like 28 days, 27 days from now. Mm. So I've, I've been running it since November. Okay. Yeah. And I have a little over about 570 people have invested so far. And uh, collectively, we've raised uh, about $355,000, which is, which is pretty cool to say, you know, you got people putting in as little as 250 and we're able to, you know, move move the, the neighborhood or move the culture that much forward by showing how we can buy a whole block just by people putting money in. That's know. beautiful. Mm-hmm. It really is. So you put $250 in this year, you might get back $15 at the end of the year. It ain't going to be nothing big, but next year you might get back $35. Right. And and you imagine if you sit $250 in a bank account and a savings account for a year, you may get, <laughs> what, 20 cents? Yeah, you're not going to get anything. Yeah, you're not, you won't get much of anything. So it, it's way better than that. Um, and the goal is for everybody to be able to invest in future projects too so you put 250 in this first one you see how it goes i'm having another project next year you can invest more in that um and eventually it it accumulates into something substantial it's no different than buying like a little bit of stock every month or something like that what do you see happening to the real estate market within the next six months here in houston um okay yeah let me start off by saying every area of the nation is completely different and other areas that don't have economically sustainable drivers, meaning things that can withstand this corona uh, crisis, mm-hmm. there's going to be a, a, a whole lot of homes that will get foreclosed on in areas where the people no longer have employment. Um, so where and that's going to be on both sides, it's going to be the people that actually own homes and um, you know, won't be able to pay their mortgages even after this, uh, this, this forbearance period is up where they don't have to pay mortgages. If by the end of this year, those people will get foreclosed on by the banks. Um, the other group is gonna be the investors that own a lot of rental property in areas where their tenants don't have employment anymore. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to hold on for so long, but then they won't be able to afford them either. So they'll be either selling them or letting the bank take those too. Um, but for a market like Houston, we are we are pretty unique because our our sources of uh, employment are diverse. So we have, of course, like the, the medical center is a huge employer here, and of course, you know, though that industry is booming right now, unfortunately, because of all the stuff that's going on. 
So those people are making a lot more money than they're, they're risking a lot, but they're making a lot of money right now. And um, so that area of housing is good here. Um, on the contrary, oil prices are really low right now. So a lot of the guys that work in the oil sector are hurting. Um, so I, I predict Houston to be kind of flat um, because there will be some fall off from the oil and gas stuff, which, which will put a bunch of foreclosures out there. But there's also gonna be more housing demand as the, the medical industry continues to grow. And um, the oil thing is cyclical, you know, that it, we don't know how long it's gonna last, but there's every 10 or 12 years, there's one of these cycles where the oil prices drop. So that, that industry will come back. I so, wanted to go get buckets, boy, and just- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wish we could. Yeah, put them in the freezer. I, I'll follow you now, and I see a lot of people who I know follow you, and okay. and they're not, they're one of the, they're part of the woke black society. And you said something that really got me going. You said this is what's brought in by Obama. Uh, the what, what was that act again? You said the Jobs Act. Yeah. The Jobs Act. Okay. Jobs and Act. how do you feel when you hear black people or in, people in general say, "Ah, Obama didn't do nothing for us"? Well, all right. I'll say this: He was the first, and you can't imagine. You can't. You can't expect the first to be the bull in the china shop. People said the same thing about Jackie Robinson. If you studied like baseball, he was the first African-American player. But he came in, he played his role. He made the other, the other group feel comfortable enough to say, okay, we can bring more players in that look like you, the way you perform. I think if anything, that was what he was there for um, more than anything. Um, you know, if he would have tried to do too much, Congress probably would have shut him down. You know, they did. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, it's like they, they, they can't expect miracles, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean that that's pretty much all. And what do you I, think specifically people? And I know this is not what you do, but what yeah. do you think specifically people wanted? Like when they say Obama didn't do nothing, you just gave the Jobs Act. I mean, you telling me that's how huge. that that's huge. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is huge. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what what what, what else and, do you? Everybody's talking about Trump giving our stimulus. They forgot Obama gave our stimulus at the very beginning of his his election because <laughs> Bush had messed everything up. So yeah, man. I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know what they expect. As people, I think our culture, we we we're waiting for a savior instead of everybody trying to figure out how we can all collectively work together. There you go. And they, you know, everybody just thought that Barack Obama was going to be the windfall for everybody. You know, I don't know. You know, Courtney and I earlier. This is not about real estate, but we were talking about the young man who was just killed in Georgia, mm-hmm. and we were talking about how could we all come together and kind of demand the open racism to stop Mm -hmm. when it comes to things like you're doing, um, reinvesting in our own neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. how can we pull more black people together? Or how can we let more black people know about things like you're doing? Black people can afford $250, they buy in Jordans. So they don't know that they can buy real estate. Mm -hmm. How do we get more of our brothers and sisters to come together and do the same kind of thing, kind of buy up these neighborhoods. I think for okay, for me, I spent years just debating with people all the time and just like talking about my vision of what I knew we could do collectively as a community. Um, and that never worked because as intellectual of a conversation that I can have somebody on the other side of the argument, if they're just as intellectual as me, um, their argument sounds just as strong or stronger. And so since what we're used to experiencing fits the other side of the argument, it's really hard for me to ever get that, get anybody on board. So what I focused on now is 
having a proof of concept. We, we like stories. We, we like things that are tangible that we can actually see. Oh, it actually works. So I figure like I feel like now that I have a workable model, um, word of mouth and, and more uh, opportunities like this, just just to speak on your platform and talk about it. This is how we kind of get it grassroots that this is what's possible. Um, I wish there was a faster way to do it, but um, I, I really don't see anything, anything else working. Um, and word of mouth, you know, is the, the most efficient way to market or advertise anything. So um, hopefully we get some bigger people with bigger platforms on board and then they, they can talk about these projects uh, more and we can get more exposure to it, you know. Um, but for me, it, it's, it's just about starting with the core group and showing some success and then and then having that success you know resonate in the community you also said i'm sorry courtney you said that you went to school for engineering what kind of engineering because there's different sectors yeah so, so civil engineering so civil engineering is basically everything that having to do with civil life from like roads to bridges to uh structural type type things um highways designing the traffic so you system. stayed in your field now it's just neighborhoods yeah, for the most part, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't like I don't sign off any plans or anything. Like, I'm not a licensed engineer anymore. But yeah, it 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 definitely correlated. It, it had its benefits. So that was my question. I know there's a lot of kids out there that are wondering, what am I gonna do with my life? Yes. Yes. How old is your son now? My son is 20. He'll be oh, okay. 21. He'll be 21 this year. He's yeah. uh he's on actually in college on full scholarship, going for entrepreneurship and finance. Oh, Congratulations. Okay. How did this whole quarantine affect him right now? Well, you know, so he's a sophomore at University of Houston and he was working on campus as well, but they're, they're basically all just working from home. He has a house that he got with two of his uh, friends from uh, high school. So, you know, they're working from, they're working from home and uh, doing uh, remote courses on the computer. So I, I think they're probably enjoying it a little bit more, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a cousin who had a son at Temple University and they literally gave him like three or four days to come get everything out of the dorms. Oh yeah. Wow. yeah. Well, thankfully he doesn't stay on campus. So that, so that was good. That was good. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. What advice we're, we're running out of time, but what advice would you give that young college student who wants to be a homeowner one day, who might want to invest in property, who might be interested in real estate, what would you tell them? I would tell them, number one, um, get get a book, this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was like, it was a game changing book for me. Get that book and read it early. As a matter of fact, I made my son read it when he was 13. Because um, it really helps you understand money more. Like we, we, aren't, we don't really understand that money is really a tool that if used correctly can start creating income for you without you having to work for it or it's not about how many degrees you have or you know how many hours a day you work you can make decisions and these decisions will make money for you and so um it, once you understand that concept it's a lot easier for you to realize how to manage your money even if you don't have a lot of it and the quicker you learn how to manage your money the quicker you can learn how to make your money grow faster, which can help you buy that house that you want or help you pick uh, which investments to put your money in. Um, I would also say don't rush to buy a house and don't just buy any house. Don't believe the hype that home ownership automatically means you made it or home ownership automatically means that you're going to be worth a whole lot of money later. Because if that's the case, there would be no foreclosures. 
right? So there's foreclosures, people people make bad decisions, think life happens. So, um, you know, make sure that you are putting the right people around you to help you make those good decisions. And as a home, if you're gonna buy a home, the biggest advice I always give everybody is get a real estate agent that understands the market where you are, especially as a buyer. Because as a buyer, the real estate agent costs you zero, zero, because the seller pays for both agents at the end of the transaction. The seller gives his agent 6% of the sales price usually, and then that agent has to split that yep. with the agent that brings the buyer. So it's free. So there's no excuse for you not to do it. Don't try to buy a house on your own. People, there, there's a sense of pride or a sense of, of obligation to put everything in both parties' names. Um, but like you said, if one person is strong enough on their own to carry that, you should probably take that route because it, it does prevent you from um, both being in a really bad situation. Say somebody loses their job or so, something else happens where, you know, the income changes. Then you can you always have the other person's credit to lean on. Or you can even take the other person's credit to go get lines of credit or, you know, to to, to be able to get a another mortgage loan to buy another house if you feel like you're about to lose this one. Um, there's so many benefits to keeping a little bit of that separated. Um, I think that I call it social engineering. Sometimes the kind of things that, that we're, we're told the way things should be, and we don't really challenge them or, or question them. When, if you really sit down and think about it, uh, a lot of things don't have to go that way. And that's definitely, that's definitely one of them. And your name. So you can have one person's name on the mortgage, but another person's name. How, how's it working again? We did on the loan. Yeah, one person's name on the loan, and then another person on the deed. On the deed. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, so the the deed is separate. So you can add um, uh, several people to the deed, um, but the the person whose name the loan is in, they're the guarantor for the loan. So if anything happens to the house, the bank is going after that after that person. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you, you definitely get, and you can also put companies uh, at having ownership right. in the house too. I think you can deed the house over to a company. Um, you know, so there's several ways to, to do that. And over, over buying too, like don't don't buy just because the the mortgage lender tells you that he's going to approve you for that much. That's that's capping out what they say that they believe you can afford monthly. So uh, try to live comfortably below that somewhere. You know, live a little bit farther out. Um, what I've seen white people do, of course, um, like they'll live below their means on purpose, but they'll they'll do it in an area where they know the property values are going up, and they'll they'll basically do what's called trade up. So yeah. you buy so so you could buy a house worth say you you were approved for two hundred and fifty thousand, but you decide to go buy a house for one fifty, but it's in a neighborhood where in two or three years that house will be worth two hundred. Right. So now in three years when you sell that house you're getting a check for $50,000 at closing that you can use to go as a, use as a down payment on the next house. Right. And you do that two or three times. Now you've got extra $200,000 in equity just from buying below your means in areas where the values are going up and just repeating the process. You do that enough times, you can write a check for your, your dream house cash in 20 years. Yep. They do, and they, they put down bigger down payments than we Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yep. think that's a, like one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that we have in our community. A lot of people make that mistake. They get their house, but they get in a house, get a in a uh, in a city or community where the value is going down instead of going up, and they right. end up house not worth nothing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's that's a whole 
that's a whole sermon right there. And that's what I, that's what I'm preaching right now for my project in Fifth Ward is because this area is gentrifying. Like you, what the neighborhoods that we call the hood, you know, when you start seeing Becky walking her dog, it ain't the hood no more. It's, exactly. it, everything just hasn't changed yet. And the time to buy is when you see Becky walking her dog, but it still looks kind of bad because yeah. the value is going to increase greatly over the next few years as all that gets cleaned up. Can we that's use that as a quote? Can we use that as a quote from you? When Becky yeah. is when Becky yeah. is walking her dog, that's when you buy. That's when you buy. Okay, cool. That's when you buy. It's gonna make a nice meme for the Instagram. Yeah. Post. The same thing is happening in the South Central right now. Yeah. We knew that it was happening when they started getting Starbucks. We were like, mm-hmm. hey. <laughs> Starbucks is coming to the hood. Something is going on. Right, right. They know it's true. That's definitely true. That is so crazy. Is there anything else, Mr. Cynical, that you want us to know? Um, wow. I, I want us to know that collectively we can do things far greater than what we're exposed to right now. Um, you know, so there was a movie that just came out called The Banker. And the storyline of the banker was uh two two brothers went into a white bank and kind of uh figured out well how they figured out how to buy the banks and, and work behind the scenes and take that money and invest it or lend it to people in our community. And eventually it caught up to them and they got shut down. Um, but I wish they would have told a story about the former slaves who actually started banks and had thriving banks like in the late 1800s and early 1900s, because that's a story that's more powerful to us. It's not about us figuring out how to be sneaky and go into somebody else's institution. What about the people who were actually slaves and they were able to build banking systems? Like if we knew those types of stories more, we would not feel like we are, we are victims all the time and that we, we were not capable of doing anything because we really are. We've done it before um, and we can do it again. It's yeah. great that you mentioned a black owned bank because there is a black owned bank in Houston. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? Have yep. you ever dealt with them when it came to home loans or business loans or anything like that? I just want to know like what the process is like at a black owned yeah. versus. So I ha- so I haven't I haven't had any personal uh, loans with them, um, but I do know people that do have loans. Yeah, they're great to work with. I mean, you know, it's a small community bank. They're they're heavily invested in the especially the third ward area, which is where their headquarters is. Yeah, and so it, it's great to support local banks because, I mean, you get the same purchase you do from going to a big bank. Uh, you keep the dollars in the community, you know. And that's what we need more of, like, uh, there, also the storyline of redlining. Everybody knows about that, right? Where the uh, the government decided to start backing loans through Fannie Mae and all those programs, but they decided which areas they wanted to do it in, and it was the areas that we didn't live in for the most part. So that gave other people an advantage where they can get more loans. But what we don't talk about is had we been supporting our own banks, we didn't need that system. Our own banks could have been lending to us that whole time. But we, we took a lot of our money out of our banks and put it in those banks after desegregation. You know, so, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things that we could have helped ourselves that we didn't. And we need to learn those lessons and be able to move forward. So. That's what's up right there. I like that. $250. I can't let go of the $250. Like, I go in a grocery store, you spend $250. Right. H-E-B done got my $250 a lot of times. Ralph's thing got my $250 a lot of times. 
Right, right, all the time. Next time I go to spend two hundred and fifty dollars, I'm gonna call my homeboy Chris and be like, "Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I got something to do with that money." Yeah. yeah. Sorry yeah. for having you talking about money laundering and stuff. I was trying to get to a bigger point, but somehow I get lost in thought. But. So Man, I mean, no, it's, it's all it's all good, healthy conversation. You can you you can edit that out like he edits me out all the time. <laughs> I know I, I know Chris was probably thinking like, hey man, I came over here, I come over here to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's all good, man. It's all good. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time. We really appreciate you. No problem. I appreciate you guys having me on. Next project, come back. Let us know. Welcome to Cherry's World. Brought to you by Less Is More Events. Get lime, lime, lime.